0: Good morning. We are literally going to build ourselves a memorial. We have rocks. I got a bunch of rocks in the back, and we are gonna stack these things up week by week, literally, and we're gonna create a memorial for ourselves. Um, if you haven't looked in the, in the flyer there, um, basically, we're starting a new sermon series this morning. Um, the first one is Jesus as the cornerstone. Uh, basically, he is the alpha, he's the beginning, and he's the end. He's the alpha and the omega and, and our series is going to look like this. Today's Jesus Cornerstone. Next week, Pastor Mike is going to be doing prayer. Then we're going to do truth, the gospel, discipleship, transformation, community, generosity, hospitality, service, endurance. And then we will close our rock stack with uh, Jesus as the capstone. And so he encapsulates everything basically that we are going to do. And so uh, God throughout the Old Testament at different times has told people in many different ways to, to just build a memorial. To um, uh, Many things were a memorial. For one thing, the, the rainbow was basically given to us as, as the idea of, of, of remember. Remember that I, I won't do this. I won't destroy the earth in the same way. And every time you see this, you'll be reminded of that. It'll be a memorial. There were feasts, there were days, there were songs, uh, psalms. Uh, myrtle gold even our communion right we do communion in remembrance of what he has done for us so as a church we want to just kind of build this thing we want to just cast vision that's that's basically what we're looking to do here we want to cast vision for for who are we as a church and what are we about how are we going to engage the community um, in a meaningful way Last week, if you weren't here, I want to turn your attention again over here to the map. And if you can't see the map, I just encourage you to come and look at the map at some point. And those red dots on the map are points where people from this church body have set their feet on missions trips for the gospel. And so, you can look and you can start to see that, wow, even though we're just a little church body, we've actually impacted and we've actually had a presence on a global scale that maybe none of us would ever really guess. So our world is smaller and smaller. And it's one big reason, too, why we're taking this step into technology is because because we never know then who, as we start to live stream sermons and stuff like that, who's actually going to tune in, who we might affect, even unknowingly. And so uh, the world is changing, the world is getting smaller in a lot of ways. And so we want to just cast vision. We want to talk about who are we and what are we about as a church. Um, So basically, we're starting with Jesus. He's the cornerstone in ancient architecture. And even today, as they were building things, everything began from the cornerstone. All of the lines were laid from there. The cornerstone was the thing that was put in. And it was put in perfectly, um, the perfect angles and the perfect uh, level and all of those things. And then from there, all of the building was put together off of that, and the lines were run, and the plums were set, and all of those things, and that is what helped to keep the building straight. If the cornerstone wasn't straight, the building wasn't straight in the end. The other thing, too, is that the the cornerstone had to be set on a firm foundation. It had to be, um, the foundation of this thing had to be prepared in a a right way, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to talk about this, and we're just going to look back in the Old Testament kind of a... uh, uh, idea here where where we would get something like this and it's Joshua and it says Joshua comes into the promised land and and basically they're crossing the Jordan River and God has told the priests put your feet in that river and it wasn't until they had actually placed their feet into the Jordan that God caused it to uh, to separate the waters to separate and for them to have a dry place to cross over the Jordan and into the promised land in. So it says, Now when all the nations had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take up for yourselves twelve stones, from here out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priests' feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you, and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel one man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. And each of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. A little bit later on, it says, Now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal. In the eastern ridge of Jericho, those 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. He said to the sons of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall inform them... Inform your children, saying, Israel, crossed this Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God has done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever." And so we're literally going to build this thing up and we're going to leave it here. We're going to leave it here as a memorial, uh, just to ourselves, just to remind us week by week, just the great things that God has done for us, that he's done for us as a church. I mean, when I think about how far the church has come and where we started, it's just amazing. I'm telling you, apart from God's hand, there's just no way we should have ever made it as a church, but here we are, and and, and it's because God has done this, because Jesus has a hand in this, and we're just going to do this thing, we're going to build it up. So let's get started. This is the very verse that we began our church with. As a matter of fact, we were so clever back in the day when we were meeting at the YMCA on Friday nights that we set our meeting time at 6.48, because we're clever like that. You know, why we did that, I don't know. But anyway, we were just clever. And, and, and Luke 6, or Luke six forty eight is this idea of, of what are you building on? What are we building our lives on? What, what, what is the, the worldview that is predominant in our mind? And what are we basing our lives on? And it says this, it says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. So in our church and in our lives, there's a necessity that we're actually digging down through the sand and we're actually beginning to build on something that is solid, something that is foundationally, structurally capable of building our lives and building the church on. It goes on to say in 49, but the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. So really what we're beginning to talk about and what we're really beginning to look at is a worldview. How do you see the world? What is the lens by which we're seeing the world through? The reality of, of the way that we see the world, even as Christians, is actually quite alarming. Only 4% of those who would call themselves Christians actually have a biblical worldview. 9% of those who say that they are a born-again Christian Say, actually have a biblical worldview. And so this is crucial as we move forward and we kind of continue to put these stones on it. It's what is the cornerstone? What is the foundation on which we're building all of this on? Ravi Zacharias, um, who's one of my favorite um, apologists, Uh, philosopher. He's an amazing guy from India. If you ever get a chance to tune in and listen to some great podcasts, tune in to RZIM, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, and and just listen to some of his stuff. But he wrote this. He goes around, and he's an apologist. He, He defends the faith, and so he went around to some, he goes to colleges all the time. He goes to Berkeley. He goes to all these places, and he defends the faith, and he debates with people, and, and, and so this is just a little excerpt from him. And he says, I remember lecturing at Ohio State University, one of the largest universities in this country. I was minutes away from beginning my lecture and my host was driving me past a new building called the Wexner Center for the Performing Arts. He said, this is America's first postmodern building. I was startled for a moment and I said, what is a postmodern building? He said, well, The architect said that he designed this building with no design in mind. When the architect was asked why, he said, if life itself is capricious, why should our buildings have any design and any meaning? So he has pillars that have no purpose. He has stairways that go nowhere. He has a senseless building built and somebody has paid for it. I said, so his argument was that if life has no purpose in design, why should the building have any design? He said, that is correct. I said, did he do the same with the foundation? All of a sudden, there was silence. You see, you and I can fool with the infrastructure as much as we would like, but we dare not fool with the foundation because it will call our bluff in a hurry. See, we can say the world that, that you know, truth is relative and all of these kinds of things. The, the world can play with the infrastructure of truth, but foundationally, we live in a, gover, uh, in a universe that's governed by truth. And if we live in a, in a universe that, that, that is governed by truth, we might rightly imply that there might also be a spiritual truth. See, our worldview is, is something that, that, it's the lens that we see life through. Um, our worldview shapes our beliefs. It directs our actions, right? Um, Worldview is how we answer the questions. Where did we come from? Who are we? What is the meaning of life? What went wrong? And how do we fix it? Our worldview is the lens by which we interpret the world around us. It determines what we believe to be true. The naturalist believes that nature is all there is. The humanist believes that if we can set up just the right government and society, our needs will be met. The modernist believes that technology will solve our problems. The Buddhist believes that he or she can free themselves from suffering by self-purification. The radical Muslim believes the only guarantee into heaven is to die in jihad. The existentialist believes that through the act of their own will, they can govern their life. The relativist believes that truth is determined subjectively and is open to wide interpretation, and the Christian worldview believes that life is about knowing and serving God. Delta and the Truth Project says your worldview becomes the driving force for emotion, decision, and action. Therefore, it affects your response to every area of life, from philosophy to science, theology and anthropology to economics, law, politics, art, and social order. Everything. It is the interpretive lenses we use for understanding what we believe is real. From our personal worldview spring all of our actions and thoughts, and it is in unguarded moments when we can really see what we believe to be true. We can all see the results of a secular worldview in the culture and in the society around us. We see the brokenness of family. We see, we see, um, we see Christians who are living nominal Christian lives. Um, we see Christians who are basically missing the purpose of life because the worldview around them has kind of permeated their thoughts. Um, we see that, um, that, 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 we, that we're living in a world that is striving to actually emulate church in a lot of different ways, except things like politics have now become religion, um, and work has become religion. Um, experiences have become a pilgrimage, and things like the gym or a spin class become church. Church. And so there's a world out there that is reeling and is dying to know something. As a matter of fact, there's a whole group of people that are on the rise out there, and they're called the nuns. They have no religious affiliation whatsoever, really. They just wouldn't label themselves as having any. It's not generally that they're opposed to God. It's just that they kind of don't really see the necessity or the need for God in their own lives. And so, as the church, how is it that we are going to basically begin to kind of confront that? And I think it starts within the church, it starts with us, and it starts with an evaluation of how do I see the world? What is the lens by which I'm looking at the world through? Because perspective is everything, right? Um, are we allowing the truth of God and His reality to infiltrate our reality, our marriages? Our parenting, our work, our giving, our serving, and our interaction within the community. See, really, basically, we start to enter into a debate, and it looks like this. Kind of the core struggle that we've got going on right now with worldview is the idea of theism versus naturalism. The idea that there is a God, that there's a sovereign God, that there's a God who is um, transcendent of his creation, or the idea that the natural world is actually all of, is is reality, and it's all that we have. Carl Sagan, when he began the show, the series, The Cosmos, years ago, began it with a statement that said that the cosmos is all that ever has been, and all that ever will be, right? And so this worldview, it has implications, right? It has a lot of implications to us because our thoughts begin to direct action right? There is no action that doesn't begin with a thought or a belief. It's why Jesus started to talk about things and, 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 and uh, make connections for us that said things like, hey, if you've ever even had lust for a woman in your mind, you've committed adultery, right? Or if you've, had, if you've been angry with your brother, then you've committed murder. See, the problem with you and I is that we don't really get real righteousness. We, we kind of say, well, if I didn't actually kill my brother or sleep with somebody else, I'm good, Right? But Jesus is telling us something else. He's saying, look, real holiness would look different if uh, if we would agree that the action wouldn't be right, then we could never agree that the thought that began it could be right either. See, Jesus begins to set us on a a foundation of ethics, what should be versus a morality or a cultural morality, which what says kind of what's popular, right? There's an old saying out there that says um, "Right or wrong is still wrong even if everybody does it and right is still right even if nobody does it. That's ethics versus morality. We live in a culture where we see a morality shift even right now, right? Moralities within cultures have the the, the capacity to move and to change and to evolve, but the idea of ethics is this idea that it just stays the same. Because it has a beginning, it has an origin outside of this that makes it an objective truth. So we basically end up, is the ultimate reality God or is it the cosmos? Is there a supernatural realm or is the natural all that we have? Is there an objective source for truth or are we left to find truth and invent it for ourselves? If life is just a chance collision of atoms or are we the creation of a thoughtful creator? Belief systems arise out of worldview. Right. If we believe that the natural world is really all that there is, then that really leads to kind of pagan types of belief systems. It, the idea that everything about God exists within the created order, that spirituality is found in unison with the creation. So we get things like New Age re- beliefs and New Age religion. We get um, the idea that things like crystals and, and, and cards and different stars and things like that can begin to guide our future or tell us uh, how things are gonna go versus looking to God and his unchanging truth that he's given to us. We have moral relativism. This is a big thing that, we're, that that's a kind of a cultural hot button topic. You see, if, if basically there is no objective source of truth if there is no God who's created all things, who we're accountable to, who has given us truth to follow, then we're left to basically sort truth out for ourselves, right? And so we end up into a relativist type of a mindset or a postmodern type of a mindset that begins to say, well, this is my truth, but that's your truth. And, and, and that truth is fine for you, that's, that's good for you, but, but this is my truth and my truth is good for me. We just start to live in a basically an existential type of an existence where we believe that through our own self-will that we can govern ourselves or set our own rules for life. If you look back into Genesis, what you'll see is that that's the very temptation that the enemy gave. It's the very thing that the enemy put forward that caused the fall was the idea of, did God really say? Oh, oh, but God knows that in the day that you, you do this, you won't surely die, but you'll be like God, right? And you'll determine for yourselves what's good and evil. The Hebrew actually has that concept, that idea, not just that you'll know good and evil, but you'll determine for yourselves what's right and wrong. You'll walk away from God and the ethical standard that he has set, and you'll begin to create and compose your own. I lived like this for a long time. The problem with that was that I was the God of that system. I wasn't a person that was under authority, I was the authority. And so naturally, anything that I wanted to be permissible in my belief system was because I was the God of my belief system. And this is where these things begin to kind of fall out. We end up with the idea of multiculturalism. We believe that people are just the product of their history. Their identity is found only in their race, their ethnicity, their gender. You see, Jesus broke down all of those walls. He began to to say, no, no, you're you're, you're not that, that you're all of one blood. You see, And, and while as Christians, we should absolutely respect cultural diversity and differences, we should never, ever believe that morality is governed by one certain group's perspective on it. We always should understand that all morality basically is to be seen through the lens of God's word and all cultural practices need to adapt to what God has called and what God has said. You see, we end up with a pragmatic kind of a view that says, hey, if it works, then it's right, right? That's kind of where we're at. Not an idealistic kind of a view, which is what Christians should have, which says basically, That no, even if it works, that doesn't make it right. That there's still a standard, there's still an ethic that's out there. There's an ideal by which things are governed and judged by. We end up with utopianism. The idea that if we can just set up the right government, or if we can set up the right economic structures that we can bring peace and harmony and, and, and life like that. It becomes a humanistic kind of a viewpoint that says that we can solve our own problems. But the Bible doesn't agree with that. The Bible says that the problem with you and me is you and me, right? That, that we, we need an answer that's outside of ourselves because we're the problem because the reality of life isn't that we're ever gonna find a place of utopia in this world, that we're never actually probably gonna govern ourselves in a way that we bring perfect peace. Technology isn't providing those answers. Um, As good as we think we are, we still seem to be struggling with the same basic core things that we've struggled with for all history. The Bible says it's because you and I have a sin nature. Because sin has pervaded the culture that we live in. It's, it's pervaded our very being. And we got a problem. And that problem has caused great problems. It's, 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 it's fallen out into the culture around us. It's, it, it's, it's, it's had wide implication. And our sin has spilled over into other people's lives. And their sin has spilled over into our lives. And, and we're just at this spot where there's a real struggle. We know that peace will really only come from a biblical worldview when Jesus returns and restores peace to this world. We end up with a a, a right now perspective versus an eternal perspective. You see, if, if the world around us is all we have and nature is all there is and there's not a supernatural realm or there's not eternity for us or the possibility of that, then everything about life becomes just about this experience that you and I are having right now. And it really turns our focus and our... Um, our perspective inwards, because to be honest with you, hey, if this is all there is, then hey, we might as well just follow the motto, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? We might as well party and we'd almost be fools really to not. But the Bible says that there's an eternal perspective that God's people are supposed to have, that we are supposed to recognize that the things and the actions and what we do has eternal implications. It has generational implications into life and into the world around us, that our lives aren't meaningless or purposeless. It's not just the random uh, bonding of atoms that just happened to get here for you and I, but that we serve a creator who loves us, who created us on purpose, who created us as individuals, and then who took and brought that diversity, hopefully into one unity, into the church. And the church is supposed to go out, right? and share this hope and this love with the world around us. So where are we at? I think that that's really something that we need to actually really evaluate and think about. What worldviews have sunk in? What what worldviews have crept into ours? Because the reality of it is is that the world isn't just kind of like whispering it to us, We are bombarded by the idea through the media and through different things. And I'm not saying let's be paranoid, but but let's also look at the realities of like, let's ask the question, is that really true? Is that really working for us? Is that really helpful? Just because some things might work at times or tend to work doesn't make them right. And, And the bigger question is, is what is our culture valuing? What, uh, what, what are we told is being true, and is it really true? Is it really working? You know, the very nature of truth, honestly, is that it is um, always exclusive. It has to be, you know, because, I mean, we could, ask, we could say, well, there is no truth, but then we have to ask the question, is that really true? Well, if we say uh, yes, then we've now made a truth claim. And if we say no, then that means that that's not true either. You see, but truth is always exclusive. Truth um, always just says, look, this is just the way it is. Um, Gravity is just as true here right now as it is on the other side of the universe. Otherwise, it's just not true, right? And we all know that we could believe whatever we want to believe about gravity and then start jumping out of the balcony, but we're all gonna get the same effect from gravity, right? whether we believe in it or not. See, belief doesn't bow to truth. Truth, wait a minute, truth doesn't bow to belief. Belief must bow to truth. So what's our world perspective? What are you building your life on? What are you building your marriage on? What are you parenting? How are you interacting with the, with the world around us? Are we believing or living in this world like there's permanence to it? Or are we actually understanding that there's a higher calling, that there's a kingdom that we've been called to participate in, to actually help to usher in around us? And that's the place of evaluation is, are we building lives that are going to have eternal perspectives to them? The idea of Jesus being the cornerstone was, was prophesied. Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Isaiah 28, 16, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed Before this this is Peter's profession of faith, and, and it says that when Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So here's a picture of Jesus beginning to lay these stones and, and, and this is an interesting thing because Simon Bar-Jonah means Simon, son of Jonah. And, and basically Jesus then changes Peter's name to, uh, from, from it to Petros. And, and it has the idea possibly of a, of a small stone. Basically what it's doing is taking the idea of a rock and, and making a name out of it. Um, and so he says, look, you're Peter. And on this... Um, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, this is a place of of real contention between Catholicism and Protestants, right? Because this is where Catholicism gets the idea of the papacy or the pope. And they believe that that, that, uh, basically Peter was the first pope and that the keys of the kingdom were handed to him and that he has handed those keys on in succession from there up to the modern day Pope, that basically that the church is built on that and that the Pope actually has the ability to of infallibility and he could change even the Bible. And, and, uh, but, but, and then Protestants are like, no, no, no. Peter wasn't the rock that which, which Jesus built the church on. It was the statement of faith. It was the idea of who do you say that I am? You know, for me, I, I think it's both. Honestly, I think that it's an I think it's an interesting picture. Um, I don't believe that you can get the idea of the papacy out of this or the idea of of papal succession from that. I I don't think that's biblical. Did Peter get the 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 blessing of actually starting the church and kind of being a foundational part of it? He did. Um, as a matter of fact, it says uh, the day of Pentecost that Peter stood up and he preached, and after he preached, 3,000 people turned and became Christians and were baptized, and the church was birthed that day. So in that sense, um, Peter did foundationally uh, kind of get the idea of the kick-starting the church. I, I don't have a problem with that idea because Peter was just a guy like you and me. He was messed up. But I think Peter gives us kind of a neat insight into it. And I think that his understanding is really good. And in 1 Peter 2, 4, 8, so this is out of Peter's mouth and how he sees some of this stuff. He said, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, as they were destined to do. And so basically, I think it's both. I think that God gave Peter the opportunity to launch the church, but it didn't make him the pope. But it is that statement of faith too, that that's what brings us into the church. That's what makes us a living stone. And that really what we see in scripture is that Jesus said, look, I'm gonna tear that temple down and I'm gonna rebuild it in three days. And in essence, it's exactly what he did. He recreated everything about the belief system of the Jews right? And he basically made the proclamation that I am the Messiah. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. And he's building up his temple now, but his temple we know isn't built by human hands. God's temple is us. It's God's people. He's began to dwell in his people, and this is kind of a picture of Jesus stacking those rocks off of himself, him being the cornerstone, that place where we find actually our trajectory, that place where we find a straight line, that place where it gets plumb and it gets level, and it's right, and we can build something solid off of that. So as stones, as living stones, we wanna make sure that, uh, that we're stacking up right too, right? that we're not something that causes or would cause foundationally this structure to fail. Ephesians 2, 19 through 21, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so that's our picture. That's where we're starting from as we want to lay these stones and these principles and these ideas and cast vision for us as a church. We're starting at this place where we say, Jesus, he's the cornerstone. He's absolute truth. I want to read something to you really quick from the word here. You see, Jesus doesn't come and make the claim to just teach us truth. He comes saying that he is ultimate reality. That in him, he's not just a messenger of truth. He's not just an avatar. He is the complete and total embodiment of truth. Listen to this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything made was made. In him was life. he of whom I said, he, comes, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For all of his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And when we look into Colossians, we see about the preeminence of Christ. Chapter one, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the church. The body, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, we don't believe that Jesus was just a good guy who, who came to earth to tell us a nice message or to even make good people out of us. Jesus was the one, he was the sovereign creator of all things. As a matter of fact, all of the universe, every atom in the universe is vibrating with a frequency. And I think that that frequency is because God spoke it into existence, that it all sings praise to him. It all vibrates at a frequency and it sings a song. The Bible talks about all of creation glorifying and singing towards God. And not only that, but he is the strong force that holds it all together. See, physics is still trying to figure out how it is that we have these things that are opposite poles, that are repelled really by each other but somehow still held together in the atomic level. And in here, the Colossians principle tells us that it's Jesus, that it's God, that it's the creator that holds all things together. See, we believe that if he ceased to hold it all together even for one second, it would all fly apart and we'd be done. He's not just a good guy. He is foundationally everything about life. He is every light that there is. He is the cornerstone that we have to build on. And if we build on anything else, then what we're really doing is we're, 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 we're making an alteration of Christianity. We're, we're, we're beginning to form our own brand. It'd be something like this. It'd be something like me telling you, you know what, I love to play soccer. I love it, man. Soccer is awesome. I'm all about it. Scored two touchdowns last week. Yeah. Um, Scored two touchdowns. Um, We were down uh, three to two. And in the last quarter, my good friend hit a home run. Of altered soccer, right? God has given us a foundation to build on. And that's all that we can build on as a church. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are ultimate reality, that you're the truth, that you, uh, you've you created all things, that you hold all things together even in this moment, that, and that you created us, each one of us, every culture, every, every uh, ethnicity, um, whether we're male or female, you created us unique, and, and you gifted us, and, and you give us just this amazing diversity, and then you call us together to be unified as your church. Lord, help us to, to build our lives on something that has permanence. Help us to, to build our lives on something that's going to have meaning for eternity, something that's going to touch generationally, not just our generation, but the next ones to come. Help us, Lord, to in our community to be what you've called us to be as the church. Help us to, to be love, to be light, to be salt, to, to reach out into the world around us and, and to help to spread this good news that you've come, that you've provided for us the solution that we couldn't provide our own, that, that we were the problem and you're our solution. You've, you've come and you've, you've restored us and you've given us the opportunity to have a relationship with a holy and perfect God and that you promise one day, not in this world, you tell us in this world that we're gonna have trouble, that there's struggles, that sin has has permeated this place, and and there's struggles in this, but but, that one day that you'll deliver us into everything that we've ever wanted, a place that's void of death and suffering and and struggles and pain, a place where where, um, we'll just enjoy your presence forever. So Lord, we know that each one of us is called to a ministry. We're called to participate, to really just to be the church. That again, we don't come to church, we are the church. And and when we come and we assemble here together to encourage one another, to to hear from your word, to be equipped to go out and to affect change in the world around us, because that is how you have determined to affect change in this world is through your people. So Lord, may we live into all that you've called us to, And we give you all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.